Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. There's very few times in our adult lives where someone, another adult gives you a pen and some paper or a marker and some newspapers and says, you got 10 minutes, make me something. Mm -hmm. And I am just always blown away whenever a group of adults does blackout poetry the results are amazing. You know, you see people, you see that, that concentration that comes on their faces. They look like kids again. You know, kids when they're playing, people think, oh, kids playing, what a great thing. No, kids are intensely serious when they're playing. You know, like my son gets so frustrated and kind of zoomed in to what he's doing when he's playing. Sometimes you wonder, like, is he torturing himself? You know, but he takes his play so Seriously, you know, he has this look of concentration when he's like pushing his cars around and stuff. And adults get that same look on their face, like when they're doing the blackout poems. And it's probably like doing a crossword or something, you know, but they they get this in this zone of concentration. And then when they're done making the poems, they'll share them. That's the thing that really blows my mind, because like if you asked a bunch of adults to write you a poem, they would like freeze up and no one would do anything. And at the end, there might be a few like exhibitionists that would get up and read something that they'd written. But most people would say silent, but because you're taking other people's words and you're just playing and you're destroying and, you know, doing this kind of almost non-serious activity, (laughs) even though people get really into it, they feel free up. Like the things that they made were no big deal and they'll read them. And it's kind of funny, but the power of that just like giving people that rain again to just hey make us something you know and and taking taking the stakes out of it you mm-hmm. know like it doesn't have to be good you just do something yeah. you know that if you experience that as an adult and you haven't experienced it in 20 years it's really powerful I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Austin, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So... 
I have been a, a longtime fan of your work, have kept up with it for a really long time, and you've also been requested by many, many of our listeners for all the years that we've run the show. So I'm really thrilled that you're finally here. Uh, and on that note, can you tell us a, a bit about your story, your journey, your background, and how that has brought you to what you're up to and the work that you're doing in the world today? Um. You know, I grew up like a lot of people. I grew up drawing and writing, and um, I just sort of never stopped. Um, <laughs> I feel like a lot of times when you talk to artists and writers, um, you know, a lot of kids make pictures, you know, and a lot of kids tell stories, and a lot of kids are interested in art. And I, I really believe that, you know, it's really the ones that don't stop that keep going, you know. Mm-hmm. That sounds simplistic, but, um, I, uh, you know, I always wanted to be like an author. I always wanted to, I always loved reading. I always, you know, wanted to be someone who had their name on the bookshelves, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I just figured it would never happen. Like I went to, um, I just had pretty low expectations <laughs> for everything. So I kind of, you know, I went to college and had some really good teachers and they all told me like, look, you'll never make a living as a writer, you know, figure something else out, Mm. you know, get, you know, get a day job and keep working on your stuff and cross your fingers. And so, um, I kind of had this career where I was a librarian for a while. Um, I then became a web designer and, um, then I ended up a copywriter and ad agency. And, um, kind of during that whole period, I was blogging and writing and, um, drawing and just kind of putting my stuff out there. And, um, I put a book out in 2010 that was a art poetry book mm-hmm. called, um, newspaper blackout, which has a bunch of my, um, newspaper blo- blackouts they look like if the cia did haiku basically they're like um i take a newspaper article and i black out most of the words and just leave a few of them behind um and so that came out it's a poetry book so it's not like i quit my day job or anything (laughs) and um but the thing that really hit for me was i gave a talk called how to steal like an artist at a community college in upstate new york while i was a copywriter and that just kind of took off and went viral. Mm. And um, it became clear that that was, you know, people wanted that in a book form. You know, they wanted something that they could buy and give to people, you know. Um, so it just presented itself as my next book. And I sold that. And um, my publisher, Workman, wanted me to go on book tour. And um, my ad agency was up for sale. And they didn't really want me to take two months off. So I just quit my job and, uh, went on the road and then steal like an artist did really well. And now that's my life. I draw pictures and write words and put them in books basically. So, um, my last book came out last year in March and it's called show your work. And it's kind of a follow up to steal like an artist. Mm hmm. Sorry, that was kind of a long, <laughs> that's kind of long winded. <laughs> no, not at all. Back through the story, um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm someone who I kind of want to go back to that point. Like, I just figured this would never happen for me, uh-huh. um, and that's something that I've always kind of, um, I don't know. I've I talked to a lot. The the one point that I always make in my books that people really seem to push back against is don't quit your day job. Mm-hmm. Um, and my, you know, my thing with that is, you know, before you can do what you love, you kind of need a, um, 
you need to make sure what loves you back. You know, there's kind of this Venn diagram between what you love and what loves you back. And whatever that overlap is, is probably where you can make a living. Mm -hmm. And so the model I kind of like is keep your day job and then build like a prototype while you're working, you know, like see if you can get a side hustle going. And then once your side hustle takes off, uh, you know, you might be able to make it into your day job. Mm -hmm. But um, I think the thing that, you know, people forget about turning a side project or a passion into your profession is that um, you always have a day job. Mm -hmm. Like there's always an unsexy part of any kind of work. And so I think people have this idea that they can, you know, turn their creative passions or their dreams or whatever into their breadwinning. And um, that can happen for sure. But you just have to be careful because once you kind of turn your passion, you know, once you turn what keeps you alive into something that literally keeps you alive, <laughs> you know, things can get a little tricky. Yeah. Um, but. Well, let's, there's so much here um, that I'm sorry. Yeah. I mean, that was so people. much like, it's like, <laughs> tell me a little bit about yourself. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, there's a reason I asked such an open-ended question because it, it leads to so many other questions. Uh, you know, I, I really want to go back to the very, very beginning of this. And I want to talk about your younger years in a bit more depth sure. and find out, you know, what kinds of childhood influences did you have? Uh, you know, what was it like growing up that would lead you to be this kid who co was constantly drawing? Like what kept you doing that? Well, I had a really good mom. Um, that helps. Uh, I had a mom who, uh, my mom was a, um, she was a home ec teacher for a while and then she became a guidance counselor and finally she became a, um, uh, high school principal. And so she's, you know, spent her life dedicated to education. And I'm, I'm my mom's only child, which won't surprise anyone who's ever met me, unfortunately. <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, my mom was always like, I mean, what I remember is she had very scheduled, um, like, art activity time, you know, like she would sit me down at the kitchen table with Play-Doh or crayons and paper and say, Hey, draw me something, make me something while she cooked dinner, you know? And then like, you know, I'd make something. She'd say, this looks great. Let's put it on the refrigerator. And like, that's pretty much what I still do. You know, it's like you schedule, you know, you schedule some time and you have a place and then you have materials, and that's pretty much what making stuff is about, you know? And so, like, a lot of times when I go out to my studio, it's like I'll come out here, this is the kitchen table, and the time's just whatever I've got in the day. And then mom's refrigerator is, like, my blog or Instagram or whatever, you know? Yeah. So I really, I mean, I trace that back to, um, you know, I, I, trace, I trace a lot of what I do back to... Um, you know, my mom and that encouragement. And, and, you know, I should note that my dad is, um, my dad was also sort of into, um, in education and, um, he's a really creative guy, but he never really had a, a, a real good outlet or a really, really good education. Mm -hmm. And so, um, uh, the one thing that, you know, my parents always, I, I never really saw my parents sitting around reading books, but we always had like, two newspapers that came every day and like um we always subscribe 
subscribed to like Newsweek and a few magazines. And so there was always this kind of influx of paper and words coming in. Um, and then the one thing that was kind of um, formative for me was just um, just reading. I mean, my parents read to me every every night and we went to the, you know, I grew up in this super small town um, in, in Ohio and and uh, the public library was just like this beacon of you know <laughs> culture, and so we would go to the library every week and get a big stack of books. And then when I got older, I would go um, I would go to the mall with my mom. And um, the mall was like up in Columbus, which is about thirty or forty minutes away from where we lived. And so there was a Walden Books there. There wasn't a bookstore in my small town, so. You know, my mom would buy me a book every time we went to the mall, and then I would follow her around reading the book while she, like, looked at clothes and whatever. So <laughs> that was, like, my little bribe. Mm-hmm. Um, and I spent a lot of time reading that way. And so, um, yeah, that was kind of how it started. Mm-hmm. Anyways, lots of reading and then lots of kind of scheduled artsy time. <laughs> Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age? led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition. They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So... You know, it's interesting. You grew up, uh, you know, being raised by an educator, uh, which makes me want to talk a little bit about education in the modern world and, you know, what your thoughts are on the way we're educating people today. What are the challenges with it? And, you know, what kinds of skills uh, are we missing and and where are we missing the boat in education? Having been raised by somebody who is, you know, part of of a system that is clearly now broken, uh, I'm really interested in hearing your perspective from your career and and the life that you've had on education today. Well, I mean, the problem for me when you're talking about this stuff is I'm my personality type is incredibly well suited to navigating the current educational system as it stands. Like I grew up, um, I'm extremely extroverted. I'm a book learner. I love to argue, you know, so like there are things in my makeup that a lot school was very easy for me. It was always very easy for me. Um, I can retain, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good at like retaining knowledge and spitting it back out. So I'm great on tests. I'm really good under pressure. You know, like just there's this kind of like bag of influences that makes me like really good at school. So, I mean, like I was I mean, I was valedictorian in my high school. I went to college on a full scholarship, you know, that that whole deal. But what I soon found out is like I'm a box. You know, I, I, I turned around. I was like, you know, I was like 20, 21 years old. 
And I realized I'm a box checker. You know, I became someone who was just, you know, I was kind of one of those people who was just achieving in order to please the authority figures in my life, which, which probably sounds kind of crazy considering what I do now. Yeah. Um, but you know, I turned around and I realized that like, you know, so much of my achievements in school and what I'd been up to was about, you know, pleasing my parents or like, you know, it got to a point where I was pleasing my professors, you know, I mean, I, I, I had a re- I had some really good professors in college and I started writing to please them, you know, and it, and I had one really good professor in college that told me, um, don't go to grad school. He said, if you want to be a writer, he's like, go get a job somewhere and just write and see if you still want to do it in a couple of years. And then you can go back to grad school or whatever, you know, cause he was talking about like going to an MFA program or something. And, um, so then, so then this really interesting thing happened where I got out of school and I realized like, wow, up until that point, you know, people who are reading my writing were either getting paid to read it, mm-hmm. like my professors, or my fellow students were paying to read it, you know? And so there was like this artificial structure. And once I got out of school, I realized like no one gives a crap about me or what I think or what I write. And that was terrifying, but also liberating in this really interesting way because I, you know, when I was in creative writing workshops and stuff, they're like, hey, look, here's all these literary journals and you can, you know, submit to these and, and they, you know, this, this is how you get your work out there. And I, I've always kind of hated literary journals, you know, <laughs> like I, and, and, and the reason is, is I'm not really a fiction writer. I mean, mm-hmm. that's one thing I realized is that, you know, when you go to college, they teach you either read, you know, write like poetry or fiction, you know? And, um, I realized I'm not really a fiction writer. And anyway, once I, once I got out of school, I real you know, then it was like, well, you could do anything now, so what are you going to do? And that's when I really dis- um, discovered drawing again, you mm-hmm. know, because I'd kind of suppressed drawing when I was in college. I kind of felt like, um, you know, writing was the more serious subject than art. And so once I got out of school, it's like, well, what are you going to do? You know, so what I started doing was I started doing those dumb blackout poems that I mentioned earlier, you mm-hmm. know, that and <laughs> say dumb because I really thought they were dumb when I started making them. I really thought like, oh my God, like I'm out of school now and like this is what it's come to. Like I'm making poetry out of the newspaper, you know. But I got kind of stuck on them and and when I posted them to my blog, people just immediately responded to them. Mm -hmm. You know, they said, wow, this is, you know, and it was the encouragement from other people that kind of kept me making them and then of course you know i started blogging and and getting interested in it. so anyway the, the the point of all this is it really wasn't until i left school and i was out of that structure that i found my really good work mm. and i'm not saying that school you know i loved college i loved the art of, i mean i love going to the library and just reading a stack of books you know <laughs> just mm-hmm. i loved college but when I think back on it, you know, I still use stuff that I learned, but 
it's kind of like one of those, I don't know, old Kung Fu movies or something where it's like, you have to unlearn what you have learned, you know, or maybe that's a Yoda quote. I don't know. (laughs) But like, it's like, you really have to kind of get rid of your, if you want to do really exciting kind of forward thinking work, like you almost have to like shrug off what you've learned and kind of go into unmarked territory where you're not sure whether you're going to get approval or, you know, praise or anything like that, you know, but, um, you know, as far as my, you know, as far as my current, you know, I just think school is too expensive. I mean, Mm -hmm. that, that to me is the big issue in modern education is, I mean, there, there's so much wrong with, but, but to me, it's really the cost. Mm -hmm. I mean, especially in higher ed. I mean, I went to school for free and I was able to study whatever I wanted to. And I studied abroad and, had all sorts of good experiences on the college's dime. And I wish everyone had that opportunity because, you know, it just opened up worlds to me. But the thing that, you know, I think back on my college experience now, the only reason I had those scholarships was because I jumped through so many hoops when I was in high school. Mm -hmm. I mean, my mom and I would actually sit down and plot out, like, here's how you could get, you know, at that point in time, you could get, um, you could get over a 4.0 in a class for taking an AP class. So my mom and I figured out, hey, if you take all these AP classes, you can bump your grade point above like a four, <laughs> basically. You know, and so we, because she had access to that system, like we pretty much figured like we knew it wasn't right. Like we knew that the system wasn't right at the high school. But like we knew that like, hey, you can become valedictorian by taking these classes, you know, we gamed the system in a sense. Yeah. And, um, that, you know, and and now of course they've fixed it, you know, that was before she was, (laughs) that was before she was the principal, you know, but, but now they've fixed it and it's, but, but, but that's what I'm kind of, uh, that's what I'm talking about is if you are a, a person who is, you know, has those skills that can navigate the system, you can game it in a way, um, but for the, for other people, particularly creative people, I mean, like, there's a lot of, you know, I have a pretty decent balance of left brain, right brain, if you want to use that metaphor. Mm-hmm. Um, but like a lot of the right, you know, the more right brain people I know, I mean, they, they really struggled in school because, you know, all school does is say, you know, learn this, spit it back out, you know? <laughs> so, um, I don't know. I, I'm sorry. All right, I feel like I'm being really incoherent no, for no, you. I'm this, giving this, you this like a great. lot of stuff. <laughs> no, this is great. Uh, you know, here's something that's really interesting to me as, as I'm thinking about what you said. You know, at, at first you have this, you know, place where you're writing and you're creating to please other people, uh, mm-hmm. you know, pleasing figures of authority. And then now you have suddenly an audience to look at. How do you maintain the balance of, you know, keeping the integrity of your work uh, because suddenly, you know, now there's a whole other group of people who are looking at what you're doing. And I'm really interested in how you maintain that balance between those two things, because you're still writing for another group of people now. And I'm really interested in how that's changed your work. Oh, yeah. And this is a big, oh, this is a big, big subject. I mean, this is really something that I've been grappling with. Um, I have this system where, um, I keep a, I have a Tumblr that's kind of like a commonplace book where I just, um, anything 
interesting I come across, I'll blog it on the Tumblr and then I'm a meticulous tagger. Mm-hmm. So one of my tags on Tumblr is audience. And I just have this huge, I, I realize that's like one of my obsessions is, is like, what does an artist do with an audience? Like once someone, you know, cause we have this, this, this romantic image of the artist as someone who, you know, does stuff no matter what anyone cares about. Right. Like, like, Oh, I, it, I'm driven to do this for myself. And mm-hmm. if everyone else likes it, great. If not, they can go to hell or whatever, yeah. you know? Um, but you know, history has shown that there's this really interesting dance that happens once an artist becomes discovered, you know, becomes discovered and has an audience. And then what, what does the artist do with that audience and how do they move forward? I mean, one of the most interesting examples is like someone like Radiohead, Mm -hmm. um, as a band, you know, Radiohead puts their first album out. Creep is this huge single. All of a sudden they're playing the frat boys, right? (laughs) You know, they're kind of like have this, uh, you know, this certain audience that they hadn't really imagined, you know, someone like Nirvana is even more, you know, apt in that mm-hmm. description. You know, like, it smells like teen spirit comes up, out and all of a sudden there are all these frat boys moshing in the mosh pit, you know. And these are like sensitive, artistic guys. And all of a sudden they have this kind of macho audience. So, like, what do they do? You know, they put out in utero, which is like a, it, it's a complete finger in the face of, you know, it's supposed to be commercial. It's supposed to lose their audience mm-hmm. or at least the bad part. Right. So, so, um, my favorite quote that I've read on the subject is, um, one of the very early editors of Rolling Stone when they first came out, um, you know, they were just winging it. And they said at one point <laughs> very early on, they said, Holy crap, people are actually paying attention to this. Let's pretend like they're not and move forward. Mm-hmm. You know, I've never been that way. I mean, I've always, I'm always very interested in how the re- audience is responding to what I'm doing, and I'm really interested in how to subvert or kind of play with that audience. And so, you know, take Steel like an artist. I mean, you know. Still, like an artist ended up in places that I never dreamed of, you know, I mean, suddenly I was in, I mean, I've had, I've had everyone from, you know, art students and creative people who are, that's the natural audience for it to preachers to, you know, army captains, you know, just this wide grandmas, you know, just this, this huge swath of people. And so, um, when I wrote Steel Like an Artist, I mean, I just thought it was like, this is just what I wish I had known when I was 19, mm-hmm. you know? And I just did a book. I, you know, I found a few books in the bookstore that looked interesting. And I was like, oh, this is what you can do stylistically in a book. And like, I had a few influences of my own. And I just, like, we made this book, you know? And then once Steel Like an Artist came out, I saw that it was stocked in the self help section. <laughs> which, you know, it's like, all of a sudden you're a self-help author. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just never, I like, I mean, it, I mean, at first I was like kind of repulsed, you know, cause I was like self-help. This is, this is disgusting. Like, I don't want to be a self-help author. Like, that's not what I'm, you know, the punk rocker in me or whatever <laughs> when I was 13, like is totally, you know, rolling over thinking about this. But what was really interesting then is it's like, okay, you're in this box Instead of completely trying to shed this label, why don't we learn as much as we can about Mm self-help? And so I kind of went on this binge of 
reading about the history of self-help and kind of looking into the self-help genre and like looking at the other books on the shelves and seeing what they do and what they're kind of about. And so then um, show your work was done with that in mind, Mm -hmm. like show your work was done with that genre in mind, that self-help genre in mind. And so what I, you know, show your work was my attempt to, you know, kind of to answer steel like an artist, but also play with that genre of self-help because I knew where it was going to be stocked and I knew what people responded to in that genre. And so I was just trying to play with it a little bit. Like I, I think, a, um, I think someone like a more concrete example in that genre, like someone like Cheryl Strayed, um, she put out a book called tiny, beautiful things under, um, that was a column in the rumpus called Dear Sugar. And she kind of played with the, I mean, that book, it's really funny because people, I mean, it's gotten a lot of acclaim and it deserves it because it's really great writing, but it's an advice column. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just like what you would read in a daily newspaper, except it's intensely personal. It's, it's what it really is, is it's a memoir masquerading as a, an advice column. Mm. And so that's the way that she's, you know, f- format wise, it's an advice column, but what it really is, is a memoir. And that's the kind of thing I'm very interested in, um, is taking a genre that already exists and just kind of tweaking it or t- kind of playing with it or, or taking a container and filling it with your own stuff. So, I mean, you know, my books, like Still Like an Artist and Show Your Work, they're supposed to be by the cash register in, mm-hmm. a, in, a, in a bookstore. Like, they're, imp- they're what you call impulse buys. You know, you see the cover, it hits you immediately, you flip through it, it looks cool, you buy it. But what I was, what is interesting to me is that the book, the gift book genre is the only place that I could see I mean, they're also really weird books, you know? I mean, they've got illustrations and they're handwritten and like the gift book genre just happens to be a place where I can really fire on all cylinders. You know, that's, that happens to be the genre where I can illustrate my own books. I could do the kind of writing I want to do, you know, and that's, and, and like it works out. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm like getting away from the original question, but to me, the question is always... When you get an audience, you know, you have a few choices. You know, you can pretend they don't exist, which, you know, I think you can do that, but that's not very interesting to me. Mm-hmm. You can try to alienate them so they'll go away. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's like, that's like the Nirvana approach, right? Mm-hmm. And then you can pander to them. That's artistic death, mm-hmm. right? So I think the way, I think what's really interesting is some balance in between pretending like they're not there and playing with them and in terms of pushing them a little bit, giving them, you know, just kind of like ratcheting things up a little bit and kind of, you know, pushing yourself, but also pushing your audience a little bit to come with you. Because like, for instance, you know, show your work starts out talking about death, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) I mean, I wanted to, you know, it was funny because I had a discussion with Todd Henry, um, who's, you know, he writes in some of the same areas. And his last book was called Die Empty. And it had like a gas, it had like a, um, 
it had a little uh it was like a fuel tank and it was on empty on the cover and it's a black cover and you know i remember him telling me like the publisher was just like oh like you can't do this <laughs> like you can't put you can't die empty like no one's like this is gonna be like what this is really this is making us uncomfortable you know but i love that idea of you know let's put i mean let's put death right at so i so like one of the first in the first section of um uh, show your work there's a spot about reading obituaries and you know it has a positive spin but i wanted to get death right on the table you know <laughs> and that was like my own little way of like sneaking you know sneaking in you know this is supposed to be a positive kind of, of like rah-rah you know um uh you know, it's, it's tough love, but it is a pep talk, mm-hmm. you know, but I wanted to, you know, I want, I like to do stuff like that. Like put in, you know, put in a little section on death and thinking about your death, you mm-hmm. know, but that's like, that's, what's fun to me. That uh, is not to shed the genre completely, you know, but to see what you can do with it. Because I, I mean, I never expect, I didn't, I mean, I don't want, I still don't want to be a self-help author really, <laughs> but like, now that, you know, that's my, you know, when you find yourself in the spot, it's like, well, geez, what could we do with it that would be kind of interesting, yeah. you know? And so that's what I'm, um, I think, you know, you don't necessarily get to pick your audience. You know, you don't really know. I mean, you make what you like and you hope that people, you know, respond to it or like you kind of find your own kind. But sometimes audiences show up that you're not, um you know, you're not necessarily expecting. Mm-hmm. And so, um, for me, I want a big audience. You know, I've never been, I, I grew up listening to Green Day, you know? <laughs> I mean, someone who, I mean, to me, Green Day is like, they take this form, punk rock, and, you know, they make pop music out of it. I mean, they have a huge, broad, like, massive mainstream audience, you yeah. know. And I know a lot of people turn their um, noses up at Green Day, but I, you know, I've always looked at them and been like, man, this is so hard to pull off. It's really hard to pull off having those kind of tastes and influences and also having a mainstream audience. Mm. And to do an album like... I don't know. It's just so it's I, I've just been kind of interested in like, how can you go for as big? How can you be as ambitious as you can and go for an audience as big as you can, but also retain your taste and your own sensibilities? You know, because I because I kind of think of myself as a dude who's into weird stuff. <laughs> you know, I mean, so like how far will people go with me? Yeah. You know, and I'm also and, but sometimes there's compromises, you know, like um. I'm kind of a vulgar guy. Like, I mean, I really, um, you know, my dad has a filthy mouth. Like I, I'm, I use a lot of profane or I used to before I had kids. <laughs> um, you know, I, I was always kind of had this foul mouth. I mean, that's the one thing I really got in trouble for when I was younger is swearing and like, you know, but, um, now, uh, like I have, a, um, I actually have a little, I have, um, the the christian community like part of the, part of uh, i don't know that you can say like there's a christian community but there are a lot of christians and and preachers that kind of got into steel like an artist cuz if you think about it like giving a uh giving a um sermon every week mm-hmm. that's like requires a tremendous amount of work and material and stuff 
And one of the things I've noticed about my audience is there are some people who are really offended by profanity. Yeah. Um, and instead of saying, you know, F them, <laughs> I've, you know, I've kind of thought, well, is it essential that I swear? Is that something that's like really important to me as a person, you know? And I think about someone like Jerry Seinfeld, who he doesn't swear because he just doesn't think it's as interesting. And so, you know, for example, like there's no, there's no, there's no profanity in Steal Like an Artist. And there's definitely none of my own profanity in Show Your Work. I think there are a few swear words from other people, but that's something that I've tamped down like consciously. Like the other, the other week in my newsletter, I linked to a, um, there was a sign hacked in Los Angeles on the street Someone hacked it to read, um, to say, read an effing book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I linked to that and I didn't even think about it. And I had like a lot of people write back to me like, I don't appreciate the profanity. And so, you know, and I was like, you know, I, uh, that's an example where I'm like, come on, like, it wasn't me, you know, like, I'm still going to celebrate stuff like that. But there, right. but that's a, that's a, that's an example of where, you know, you asked me about audience that's an example of where I'm like, hey, there are people of all walks that read me. And I'm not trying to pander to everybody, but maybe me dropping an F-bomb, if if I drop an F-bomb, that's going to turn off these people that might need to read what I have to say, yeah. but they can't get past the F-bomb, right? So is it really that important? Is it really an, a, a matter of integrity, whether I keep my foul language i mean as much as i love george carlin and richard pryor and grew up with those you know like is it really that important for me to swear in public (laughs) you know to keep my so that's like you know that's just a tiny example but those are the little cuts that happen as an artist you know you're you know you're kind of i I, and i don't you know um you got to save something for your own life you know i mean i'm always kind of like uh you know i i I tell people, you know, like, I've always kind of um, wondered if I should have had a pseudonym. I mean, I always thought Austin Cleon was a weird enough name <laughs> that I didn't need a pseudonym. You know, I was like, Austin, uh-huh. Cle- no one else is named Austin Cleon. That's a weird name. It already sounds fake. You know, um, I'll just keep that. But now I kind of think, like, it would be interesting to have a pseudonym. So people were just a little bit more clear that, like, I'm not necessarily the guy that you read in the books, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I'm, I'm a gentler, kinder, more helpful, non-profane version of myself in my books. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, it's definitely me, but like the guy in the books is kinder and nicer and more helpful than I am in person. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's what art is. I mean, that's what this stuff is about. I mean, if you can't be better than you actually are in your work, then what chance is there for anybody? (laughs) So anyway, that's that's a long-winded answer again to the question of audience. (laughs) Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. 
Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. <laughs> so let's do this. Um, let's shift gears a little bit. Actually, there's right. one other question I want to ask from the beginning of this, and this is, it'll be interesting to hear your perspective. You know, you said that you never stopped drawing, and then you also had this idea that this could never happen for you. What yeah. I'm really interested <laughs> in is what do you think it is that causes people to stop, and how do you overcome that sense that, that it could never happen for you? Well, I mean, I, uh, for one thing, I think it's school. Um, I, going back to that subject, I mean, I think that something happens right around middle school or puberty or whatever where people become self-aware. Like young – and that's partly to do uh, – the school part will come in in a minute. But, you know, when you when you hang out with young kids and you – like you ask any, any young kid, you know, four or five to draw you a picture – They'll just do it, yeah. you know, and then they'll throw it out. Like they don't care about it after they make it, you know, they're just like, they'll do it and it's done. And like, they're cool with it. But, but ask a 13 or a 14 year old, you know, to draw you a picture and, you know, some of them will do it, but a lot of them, you know, that's kind of the age where all of a sudden it's like, well, I'm not good at drawing. Like mm -hmm. I'm not, you know, I'm not. I'm not so so I think that a couple of things happen like one I don't know what we start labeling um Linda Berry the cartoonist has a beautiful essay about this uh, comic called two questions is the name of it and um you know she says at what point does the question does this suck enter the equation yeah <laughs> like at what at what age do we start asking ourselves of our drawings like does this suck do i suck am i any good at this you know and i think part of that is like you know you start going to you know you start going to school and you're getting a's and there are people who are good at math or people who are good at you know english there are people who are good at art for me in particular i mean there's no like there probably is now. There's probably like a really cool cartooning class in some high schools now where like, you know, you you talk about writing and art together. But, you know, when I went to school, it's like you had art class and you had English class and there really wasn't much in between. Mm -hmm. And so that set up itself by splitting those two, you know, subjects apart from each other. That sets you up with certain structures in your brain, you know, and um I actually, it's funny because in college, I actually went to an interdisciplinary school, which the whole point of the program was to take multiple disciplines and kind of blend them back together. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's when I discovered, you know, I kind of started putting pictures and words back together again. But um, I think that something happens with um, 
like I said, around puberty or middle school or whatever, like you become self-aware mm-hmm. and all of a sudden there's ego involved in making something. Yeah. And, um, I think that the people, you know, for me, I was always praised. I mean, you know, I, I was, I obviously had some inborn talent for writing and drawing. And so I was always praised for it. And so then I didn't stop because I was like, oh, well, I'm getting praised for this. Yeah. You know what I mean? But I wonder how many people had the gift who they never got praised for it and then they got self-conscious about it. And that's why I think um, someone like Linda Berry um, in some of her books, like uh, What It Is, um, she's very interested in and, – and there's another guy named Dan Rome whom I'm friends with who – they're very interested in bringing people back to drawing adults because there's a power to drawing and it's a very, very powerful thinking tool. Um, and so, you know, there, there are problems that uh, drawing can solve that adults don't get, you know, they don't get access to that problem solving because they don't, you know, Oh, I can't draw, you know? Um, and I also think that, I mean, something really interesting happens when I do, um, once in a while, I'll do a blackout workshop for like a public audience. And this really cool thing happens when you do the blackout poems with people because there's very few times in our adult lives where some, another adult gives you a pen and some paper or a marker and some newspapers and says, you got 10 minutes, make me something. Mm-hmm. And I am just always blown away whenever a group of adults does blackout poetry. The results are amazing. You know, you see people, you see that that concentration that comes on their faces. They look like kids again, you know. Kids, when they're playing, people think, oh, kids playing, what a great thing. No, kids are intensely serious when they're playing. You know, like, my son gets so frustrated and kind of zoomed in to what he's doing when he's playing sometimes you wonder like is he torturing himself you know but he takes his play so seriously you know he has this look of concentration when he's like pushing his cars around and stuff and adults get that same look on their face like when they're doing the blackout poems and it's probably like doing a crossword or something you know but they they get this in this zone of concentration and then when they're done making the poems they'll share them. That's the thing that really blows my mind because like if you asked a bunch of adults to write you a poem, they would like freeze up and no one would do anything. And at the end there might be a few like exhibitionists that would get up and read something that they'd written. But most people would say silent, but because you're taking other people's words and you're just playing and you're destroying and, you know, doing this kind of almost non-serious activity, (laughs) even though people get really into it, they feel free up like the things that they made were no big deal and they'll read them. And it's kind of funny, but the power of that, just like giving people that rain again to just, Hey, make us something, you know, and, and taking, taking the stakes out of it, you know, Mm -hmm. like it doesn't have to be good. You just do something, you know, that if you experience that as an adult and you haven't experienced it in 20 years, it's really powerful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No doubt. Well, let's do this. Let's shift gears a little bit and let's talk about this entire framework for how to steal like an artist. Cause I think it'll make a nice segue to, you know, kind of wrapping up our conversation, you know, how do people do that and how do they incorporate that into their work, their art? 
Well, I think a lot of people already do it. Mm. I think it's kind of a natural human impulse to kind of devour, um, kind of devour influence, to be influenced, to seek out things that respond to you or, or that you respond to and to kind of wrap them up in, in your mind and kind of, you know, I think a lot of people do it um, subconsciously. You know, we're always taking an influence and then we forget about it. And then when we make our own work, it kind of comes out, you know. And Steel Like an Artist is about being intentional with your influence. Mm-hmm. Like instead of just being influenced by random stuff, by actually going out and seeking you know, having a kind of creative kleptomania, you know, where you're you're on the lookout for stuff to steal. Mm-hmm. Um, Philip, uh, oh gosh, what is his name? Oh, I'm blanking on his name. Oh, uh, uh, Philip Pullman, the guy who does the Golden Compass and those books. Um, he uh, he says, uh, you know, when I'm reading, I'm looking for stuff to steal. He's like, people always ask me all the time where you get your ideas. And he's like, you know, I steal them. And he's like, the difference between me and you is I'm on the lookout for stuff. You're not looking for it. And I think that was the point of Steal Like an Artist is to get people in that mode of actively looking for influence. Mm -hmm. And then taking that influence and, and saying, what from this can I take? You know, what, what can I take from this and how can I tweak it? And how can I put it? together with other things I've taken and kind of transform it into my own work. What can I add? You know, what can I subtract and how can I transform my influences into something? So it's really about taking a process that we're all kind of, we do subconsciously anyway, but is usually pitched as a bad thing. You know, a lot of people, like sometimes people say, oh, I, you know, when I'm writing, I don't read anything because I don't want to be influenced, (laughs) you know, and like I'm the opposite. I mean, I'm like, you know, I want I want tons of influences and I don't want just one influence. I want a hundred, you know, because if you put a hundred influences together, you know, there's another great quote. If you rip off one author, it's plagiarism. If you rip off a hundred authors, it's research. (laughs) It's like that idea of actively looking for influence and embracing influence instead of running away from it. And then, you know, mashing it all up together and Uh then transforming it into something new that was really the point of steel like an artist so that brings me to a, a, another question in this world in which we're inundated with you know tweets and facebook status updates and blog posts and videos and, and all of this how do you filter filter um all this cultural influence in a way that allows you to put it back together uh and do what you say is finding your great work yeah, man, that's a great question. Um, to me, it's about really trying to really trying to pay attention to what's making your gut strings vibrate. Mm. Like, because I mean, there's a lot. If you're hooked up to Twitter all day, or you're reading the blogs and stuff, I mean, you've been online. It's like an echo chamber. You know, people yeah. are people are constantly like just kind of you know passing. And I'm I'm as guilty of it as anyone else. You know, people are constantly passing around the same links, and they're looking at the same art. And you can even see it with illustrators. You know, like one style will be become very. You know, everybody's into this style now. Everyone's into flat design this week. You know, and everything looks. A certain way and so i think that part of the um you know i think 
there's nothing wrong with, you know, being connected and being influenced. But I think, you know, a lot of being unique or kind of attempting some sort of originality is really more about the kind of going deep and finding the kind of, you know, seeking out influences that other people don't have necessarily, you know? So I think of someone like Quentin Tarantino, you know, Quentin Tarantino is like one of my favorite examples of this. Cause this is a guy who is obviously, you know, spent about, you know, I don't know, 10 years, five, 10 years, just watching movies and, in, in a like working in a, a video store and just watching an insane amount of movies, you know? And so his knowledge is encyclopedic. He, he knows the blockbusters, he knows the Oscar winners, the mainstream movies, but he also knows all the weird Kung Fu movies and Westerns and bizarre out there films, you know? And a lot of what Tarantino does is he takes these, you know, art forms that, you know, not a lot of people are looking at. And that's what he kind of, you know, he takes these references and builds them up into something that a mainstream audience can appreciate, Mm -hmm. you know? And so to me, it's like, um, a lot of times, uh, you know, you have to kind of, I think you have to seek out other avenues and ways of discovering things. So, you know, that's why I think, you know, something as old fashioned as going to a library and just kind of wandering the stacks and bumping into books you'd never, you know, no one would ever point to online, you know, that kind of thing, or traveling somewhere new or interesting, you know, or just looking at material that most people don't consider um, decent fodder for art. You know, I, I got interested recently in a, um, in a woman named Karita Kent, who was a um, she was a really fabulous screen printer and artist, but she was also a nun, <laughs> and um, she was really into and like this is in the sixties and seventies. She was really into stealing like advertising and like billboards and all sorts of stuff around Los Angeles. She would take this type and these slogans and stuff, and she would retweak them into a religious context text and she did all these really beautiful um screen prints using like like she'd take a uh um she was kind of andy warholish in the in the way that she she'd take like a bag of wonder bread you know and she'd break the elements apart and she would bring out the religious context of wonder bread you know because if you think about like christianity and and the bible like bread has a very distinct meaning and like the idea of wonder bread you know she would do that kind of weird stuff but like no one at that time thought the advertising was ripe for you know making art let alone religious art you know so that's the kind of thing that you think you have to kind of think like where the first First part is kind of knowing where everyone else is looking and then kind of discovering what people aren't looking at, you know, and sometimes that's the way that you can really find your niche or your uniqueness or if you want to call it originality. Well, you know, I'm going to use this opportunity for a shameless plug for a new project that we've just launched called unmistakableposters.com. And, you know, what's interesting is, is it came about through a very similar process. You know, I looked at the fact that I could write certain things, but I couldn't illustrate. And of course, you know, everybody knows that we work with this amazing illustrator named Sarah Steenland. And I, you know, I'd written this post called the 15 principles of an unmistakable standard. And I said, Hey, can you take a stab at illustrating this? And what came out was something that we could put up for sale as a poster. 
Uh, cool. And we would have never predicted that uh, just because we're blending different art forms. Yeah. And so, you know, it's like what and this is basically creative to me. You know, people ask me, I'm like a creativity guy now, which I never expected. But mm-hmm. it's like, you know, people ask me for my definition of creativity. And like the best thing I can come up with is you take things that are in the world and you put them together into something that didn't previously exist. Mm-hmm. So it's like with that is your definition of creativity. Creativity can be putting the ingredients together to bake a loaf of bread. You know, it can be sewing a dress. It can be, you know, uh, building an air filter on a spaceship when you need one, <laughs> you know, Apollo 13 style. Yeah. Or it can be painting a picture, you know. And so creativity is just a tool that you, you use to do stuff, you know? So like, you know, if you want to be a better writer, you know, sometimes creativity helps sometimes not being creative helps, you know, and taking. So, um, yeah, I think it's just, uh, for me, a very basic creativity is just taking two things that no one really thought of putting together and putting them together and seeing what they do. Awesome. Well, hey, Austin, I want to wrap with uh, my final question, which is how we close all our interviews here at The Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Oh, um, you know, unmistakable. Gosh, I feel like one of my favorite um, one of my favorite quotes recently has been like um, Hitchcock said, uh, style is self plagiarism. (laughs) (laughs) And, and I feel like there's something, you know, I almost think that, you know, that you've hit your style or, you know, that you've hit that thing that you do almost when it becomes easily emulatable. Mm -hmm. Like, like Wes Anderson is someone that everyone's always doing a Wes Anderson parody, you know? And that's because he's hit on something that's so uniquely his that people know what that's like to be a Wes Anderson, you know? So I almost think in some ways, you know, you're unmistakable almost when the world doesn't need you anymore. Like you've, like you've created something that like people say, Oh yeah, we get it. You know? And they finally, bring it in. I don't know. I don't know what that means business wise, but I don't know. That's probably a, that, that was my, um, that's my softball lob of an answer. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) Unmistakable. That's such an interesting word. Yeah. I didn't think about that. (laughs) Well, Hey Austin, uh, it's been my absolute pleasure to have you here as a guest on the unmistakable creative. Like I said, you've been long requested. So I'm, I'm really glad that we finally got a chance to have you here and I really appreciate you taking the time to join us. I hope I haven't disappointed everyone. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm very, I I was very pleased to be asked and, and thanks so much. Yeah. And for those of you guys listening, we will wrap the show with that. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called the four keys to success in an AI world. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator, that enhances your unique human skills. 
The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.